to designate a period of time just to say two weeks in this case uh, is to emphasize <coughs> make a dedication to an offering punya all of us want to do something to help the situation I'm sure would like to be have some good influence a benevolent influence on say the Gulf War or the problems of the world outside of our own lives we, we also out of good intentions compassion would like to be our lives to be of some benefit to others and so we we can make this determination to about this retreat this this two two individualism special offering outside just the ordinary offering of Imina Punya. Now if you think about it, on the, your conditioned mind will doubt it. You think, what good does it really do? Is it just, well, you know, it, one can, can just um, be cynical about it or not regarded as being anything worth giving much paying attention to or it is what you really want it to be you can make it into something you know we have the ability to to make things work to to put our spirit into the form to to bring uh, that which is dead to life to to uh, put our effort, vitality, into, into this vigil. So that it's, it's wholehearted and complete, it's generous, it's kind, it's, it's compassionate. And so at this time, in Amravati, there's this, say we have this, this uh, perfect intention When all they say the, the world seems to be caught up in, in uh, blaming and name calling and threatening gestures, uh, and not only threatening gestures, uh, aggressive uh, attacks and kinds of ugliness happening at this time, we're, we're, we can also use our lives, our bodies, our minds for this spreading of metta, this peacefulness, this compassion. We recognize that the the our own particular view of the world and from where we are is very conditioned and limited by the condition by those conditions. Therefore you know, don't believe the world is really what you think it is, uh, or that that things are the way they seem to be. One thing you realize more and more as you understand Dhamma that that uh, that it's not that that the the world uh, uh, that we're that we believe in that we regard as real is only an illusion in itself. 
So the Iraqi war and all this can seem very real, and it's kind of it's big news. It's reported. It's, it's got all kinds of money and power and ambition and anger and hatred and blame and all this. Uh, very powerful forces are in operation. But this is the realm of the of the Ashuras, the titanic forces, the jealous, ambitious giants, titans, and this whole realm operates uh, from ignorance, from not understanding Dhamma. So one one way to to not uh, say promote or encourage or go along with all of this stupidity and ignorance is to not be that way ourselves. At least try to make this this uh, vigil uh, a very special intention to to be very patient and very uh, with yourself, with the people you're living with, to be very peaceful, to be peace with yourself, with your body, with your mind, with the time. Being peaceful isn't a, a kind of passive indifference or uh, a sentiment, but the peace, being peaceful means not creating conflicts around the way things are. Not adding to it, not compounding this pre- the, the way it is now with something out of our fear or desire. When we think of the Gulf War and the, the alliance and the Iraqis and all this, they put these thoughts in and align them with thoughts of peace and kindness so that they are our thought, our ability to think, we're deliberately using, uh, not as a habit or prejudice or a bias or a preference, but a deliberate determination, intention to think those thoughts in in ways of according to dhamma, according to karuna, compassion, rather than according to say personal fears, desires, national prejudices, uh, all the rest of it that, that from the conditioned mind. Mm. Now sometimes, it, it, as I've mentioned many, many times, it's easier to have metta for the Iraqis than it is to have metta for someone sitting next to you who's not holding a gun at you or not torturing you or not or anything but maybe just you feel annoyed with them because they they uh, blow their nose or something so that you can you recognize that the immediacy of the Iraqi Soldiers, Saddam Hussein, are quite far away. They're no immediate threat to us at this time. So sometimes our, uh, we find it much more 
easy to spread metta to somebody far away, then somebody right next to us, somebody close. Somebody, we recognize that we're all here uh, keeping these precepts and Buddhists uh, practicing this way of morality and truth. And yet we can, we really hate each other sometimes, can't we? You really feel offended or jealous or, or uh, angry over the way somebody does something or says something or doesn't do something or the way they happen to look or the way they happen to sit, the way they happen to be. Being peaceful with that, with your own with those tendencies in yourself to feel anger and annoyance or be critical or or whatever the, negat- the, the negativity that arises in your consciousness try to be at peace with it learning to be at peace with the way it is I mean, you're not adding anything to it if you're feeling annoyed or angry with somebody then be at peace with that feeling that means not adding anything to it, just recognizing this is the feeling that's present out this way, the way it is. How many of you, when you start feeling angry or jealous or annoyed with somebody, then you can go into the, the whole cycle of, you know, I shouldn't, this is a peace vigil, I shouldn't, I shouldn't hate that person, uh, I should have loving... I feel should feel loving kindness for that person and feel guilty and worthless because uh, you you've intended to spend the next two weeks just with thoughts of loving kindness and peace and find yourself filled with anger and aversion towards somebody or something. Don't see that as an obstacle. See that as a challenge to your practice as a way of being peaceful with with something very unpleasant inside yourself your own bad mood or feeling or doubts or and that's also developing peacefulness with something that is quite unpleasant that be angry have to feel anger inside your mind is most unpleasant isn't it i find it so and i when angry thoughts arise in my mind i find it very unpleasant that's why one wants to blame somebody else God, it's your fault. You, if you didn't say that, if you, if you didn't do that, then I wouldn't be angry, and I'm miserable, and I'm hot and angry because of you. That's that's one uh, immature reaction, isn't it? You blame somebody else. Or we can think, oh, here I go again. I'm a hopeless case. Anger again. Can't control it. I shouldn't be this way. This is a time for being peaceful and fulfilled and spreading uh, metta. I, I can't even. I can't even have a decent thought towards my my brother monks, sister nuns, who's sitting here seething. I'm a terrible man, hopeless case. And they go on like that. Or say the the what I recommend. Is, is neither blaming somebody else, not following the blame, or either towards another person or towards yourself, but 
This is this feels like this, this anger, this annoyance, this irritation, it's this way. I'll be at peace with it. I'll just let it be this way. With this, uh, say, this past few days with all this snow and the, and the trying to get the uh, central heating going in the sala and all the kind of things, the kind of complications and difficulties and inconveniences and and uh, problems that arise, then the mind, you find that there's this kind of this feeling in my mind. There's a certain stirs up certain feeling of dis-ease or kind of concern and one feels concerned, one feels uh, these different mental states that aren't very pleasant to have in themselves. These mental states are not pleasant states. Now how I deal with that is by being at peace. I, I say, this is the way it is. I accept these mental states the way they are. I accept this in in the present moment, the way it is, the way I'm feeling right now. This feeling maybe not feeling very good or feeling concerned or feeling uh, kind of thinking things are going a bit wrong or things might get worse or whatever the 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 uh, mental states might be. I I really put forth the effort to recognize them to say this these are they they they're like this and it feels like this. What does it feel like to feel like this rather than just react to indulging or suppressing? This mental state is this kind of it feels this way. I don't know how to describe the way it feels, but you can certainly know how it feels by watching it, by witnessing it. And it's all right. You feel peaceful. Even with everything going off. Things going wrong. Having to, you know, my in my cootie, the electricity went off and the pipes frozen and in the sala the painters need the heat in the sala so the plaster doesn't crack and all the new ceiling and all this and that. And then the, and then the uh, not to mention the snow and the ice and then certain people having particularly getting particularly difficult at this time and, and uh, going through bad patches and and various this and that plus the Gulf crisis and uh, having uh, having the snow tracked into my room and, and uh, now everybody uh, because of my complaints, they, they tried desperately to not let all the hot air out of the room. Thank you very much. <laughs> my uh, concern about the uh, computer, uh, the uh, the uh, computer uh, for my rowing machine getting cold. <laughs> and then concern about the monks getting so busy they are at the panel rushing around like like a uh, Tasmanian devil. <laughs> <laughs>
this. Look at their stomach. <laughs> Plus this morning I drank too much and I sadly had to rush back to my kuti. Trying to get my wellies off and plus my all my robes from falling or tripping on on the floor to get to the toilet to drink the tea. Get your snowy wellies off in your little room with your Sangadi wrapped around you and tripping on your Sivara. <laughs> with this incredible internal pressure. <laughs> it was like a Woody Allen film. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way it is sometimes. <laughs> and one one is 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 willing to try to, try to investigate, not try to objectify that all that kind of the, the way the mind is at that time. See if you can do it. Just try to get it like a picture, like you're trying to take a photograph of it, of what it's like. Uh, you know, so that you can begin to see it. You can actually do that. You can, when, when life is uh, have problems and difficulties and you know, there's worries and it's not just you being neurotic over nothing. There's actually, you know, problems arising, difficult situations to deal with and questions, uh, decisions that have to be made and this and that. These are just part of life, isn't it? We all go through this and sometimes they all come at you at one time. So then this, to, to be able to see that as an object rather than just be caught in, in reaction to it, to it, either suppressing it or trying to run away or blaming somebody or, or just endlessly worrying and being, you know, being just upset and, and uh, confused by all this. You, you contemplate that what does it feel like the mind when it when this is happening what is it what is the mind like what is the ditta like it's this way isn't it I see and when you can really ex appreciate this ability to reflect on the way it is you feel at peace with it I feel it perfectly at peace with everything I mean, I feel peaceful with all these uh, unpleasant feelings. So that you realize you can actually be at peace with with that which is uh, which is uh, unpleasant or annoying or difficult or confusing. That's what we mean by peace. Just recognizing the way it is, and this is this is it, and not not to to uh, impose, like when we when it comes from the ego, then I don't want I don't want life to be like this. It's not fair. 
I'm not ready for this. I can't stand this. I don't like this. Let me out of here. I can't bear it. I can't stand it. I can't cope. It's your fault. You, you, you have, you would, right, if you were doing the right things, it, this wouldn't have happened and blaming or, or blaming yourself. These are the immature and adequate ways of dealing with all this, dealing with it. Or we can look at it in this much more skillful way, way of peace, understanding of the Buddha seeing the Dhamma. So this peace vigil is uh, see it as an opportunity to really whatever you know like like whatever happens to you during these next two weeks the emphasis the intention is to be at peace not to just be sentimental like the old people in Iraq and and all the Americans and the British forces and do that too pray for them or send your, share the blessings of your life with them and uh, make special effort to to bring this Gulf War into your consciousness as something that you're 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 trying to, to influence and trying to or trying to help with what is good and kind rather than what is angry and, and prejudiced biased Full of anger, hatred, and and uh, resentment and blame. Even uh, somebody like Saddam Hussein to and Meta to Saddam Hussein, or the bad ones as well as the good ones, the innocent and the guilty, the killers and the and the, those who are killed. This, this meta practice is always the, 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 the compassion towards all beings. <clears throat> Unlike Islam, we don't have a, we don't go to heaven for killing an infidel. <clears throat> if you want to, in, in Buddhism, you don't go to heaven for killing a, an apostate, an infidel. Sorry about that. <laughs> but we spread metta to apostates and infidels and all that. We can, we can uh, send metta and compassion to them. And then with our own life here, with the challenges of community life and, and uh, difficult climatic conditions and and the uh, things that happen to us here at Amaravati during the next two weeks to put a special put forth that special reminder to yourself of being at peace. Doesn't mean to to ignore and pretend everything's all right. Not being deluded and and uh, and uh, trying to not notice, but really noticing when you're feeling upset you're feeling confused or feeling uh, or just agitated 
or whatever. See if you can really just say to yourself, what does it feel like as a feeling? See if you can just observe this, this feeling as an object. I found this very help, very wonderful kind of way to practice. And it works for me. Then to contemplate, life is like this. It's this way. Life is because of birth and and the way and being conscious and sensitive and all these these conditions that we have to bear with that are that that are the result of birth and, and living on this planet. Then like the weather and the any kind of illnesses or physical discomforts, uh, inconveniences, or emotional annoyances, problems, confusions. Life is this way. So this is a complicated realm that we live in. Isn't it? To have a body with eyes, ears, nose, tongue in it. And then to have a, a memory and, and only be able to to remember things and to imagine and create uh, and to uh, reason, able to use reason and logic, have a rational mind, and intuition, and and all of this imagination. We're, we're set up for being very confused and complicated creatures. If we don't get the right understanding, then we, we find ourselves overwhelmed by all our complications. And life is is a very complicated right now. It's a very complicated time. It's not like, you know, the old days when you when we were all kind of maybe cavemen and women. Just you know, you went out with a club and bashed a bear over the head, brought it back, and the cave lady cooked it up for dinner. <laughs> we didn't have rowing machines with delicate computers on them or didn't have uh, central heating systems that go haywire and didn't have uh, uh, all these uh, toilets and sinks to look at. Maybe in the old days of the cave, cave men, we were we just grunted again. You, you woman, me man. <laughs> <laughs> you cook bear meat, I eat. <laughs> we didn't have it. How do you really feel about? Uh, do you think it's moral to kill a bear? <laughs> <laughs> What would the Green Party think in the ecological movement? And uh, is it is this uh, is this right with the Dhamma or to kill a bear for food? Or uh, we can make it very complicated now. Isn't it? So nothing is is easy for us. Everything is 
very complicated. We know so much, we have so much information, we have so many ideas, you get inundated every, every month, you know, here at Amrapati you get the, just the Buddhist uh, newsletters from all over the world, can't keep up with it. It's, there's so many Buddhist organizations now and everybody has their little review and newsletter sent out and on to all the others, the New Age movements and the ecological movement and the Green Party and the peace movements and so forth. There's many kind of uh, grand uh, organizations, humane and and uh, Aquarian and Golden Age and all concerned with very good things. But life is complicated, isn't it? Because so much information, so many things, so many views, so many opinions, so many different ways of looking at something or other. But we can objectify this. You can see uh, this is uh, how how we can this what it's like to feel uncertain or insecure or confused or torn between two things or what does it feel like? And what is it what is it like as an object? If you can't make up your mind to do something, or you can't sure which, which thing, which, uh, you, which thing you should choose, you can just be, you can look at that very feeling of not being certain or confused, or and and really be at peace with that state of indecision or confusion. Or vacillation, like this. So this is a way of simplifying everything. It's, it's going back to simplicity, where there is the knowing of the Dhamma, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, rather than me, a very complicated person with with a path and a history and a birth certificate and a passport and diplomas and certificates and and um, the whole the whole range of of me me and mine and and uh, my character my my natal chart my uh, every I have a astro intelligence record now computerized my 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 astrological prediction uh, chart has now been has been uh, computerized. I'm a very complicated person, and and I have very complicated emotions. I'm not the simple kind of caveman. I'm a very sensitive, uh, highly developed. Easily offended, easily upset, uh, high-strung kind of person. I'm not like the caveman and say, "Me man, me go get bear." 
You woman, you cook there for me. <laughs> so getting taking back taking our uh, to our refuges is the ultimate simplicity. Much more simple than the caveman and cave woman, isn't it? The Buddha seeing the Dhamma is the the knowing of the way it is, whether it's the bear or the, the cave, the man or the woman or the astrological astro intelligent birth record or the or the uh, uh, passport and birth certificate and university degree and all the rest of it. We 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 are not we're not making problems. We're not being caught up into the quality and conditions of the of the uh, myriad uh, variations, permutations, convolutions of the conditioned realm, but we're recognizing the condition as condition. All that is subject to rising is subject to ceasing. We find a sense of being at peace with conditions, even with unpleasant conditions, confusing conditions unwanted conditions one can be at peace with. Now how do you do that? And that's something that you practice with. We aren't used to being at peace with life. We're used to making, uh, compounding everything, making it more complicated than it need be. Avicca bhajaya sankara sankara and so forth into the whole complicated mess we create so just have the way it is now we could make a problem about it I don't want this I don't want this problem I don't want life to be like this. I don't want you to be the way you are. I don't want to be the way I am. I think it's not fair. There shouldn't be a Gulf War. It's not right. It's immoral. It's wrong. It's evil. I don't want this to happen. I don't like this. And it goes on and on and on. What are we going to do? What if it keeps freezing? All the Pipes freeze. What will happen when they thaws and all the pipes burst? What will, what do you do when when this happens and that happens and after the retreat and and blah 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 on on into conceptual proliferations that just never never cease and get more and more complicated until all you can do is just kind of rush off back to your room and crash out on your bed hoping to get a good night's sleep and forget about it. Or sit like the thinker with a headache. Oh God, life is horrible. It's not fair. I've failed. I'm a mess. I'm a failure. No good. I'm hopeless. Or that's that's the conceptual proliferation. That's the compounding. That's the sankara. You've added something. But when there's just the recognition of this mood, you're feeling really down, depressed, or confused, or 
upset or angry. There needn't be added anything to that. There's just a recognition this is the way it is. There's a witnessing of it. it, it you, you, you understand it. So you go to it and you really look at Feel it. Be willing to feel that way. When, you, when you're feeling confused or distressed, really be distressed and confused. So you really see that in conscious, fully conscious distress, not, not just uh, kind of trying to get rid of it, reacting to it. Reaction to these moods, we just, we never really see them, we never understand them because we're always just trying to, to do something about it out of habit, out of ignorance. So, if, if you feel confused, be totally confused. Don't be frightened of being confused. But be totally, and understand it, really, really acknowledge it. Study it, investigate it. Not analyze it on a, as a kind of personal failure or problem not what I'm asking, that doesn't help, but to just see it, it's like this. It feels like this. This is what we call jitanupasana satipatthana. We're, 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 we're looking at the, the jitta. Not judging it. Not analyzing it, but recognizing that, that the mood, the feeling of the moment, the emotional reaction is this way. And there's a sense of being at peace with it. Because you've accepted it, you, you've understood it, you're, you're accepting, you're understanding, you're acknowledging, you're aware. These are all uh, skillful mental states to understand, to accept, and to be aware, and to be patient. These are all virtues and skillful uh, ways of dealing with phenomena. But when you're just reacting out of fear and desire, you, you, you just make it more and more complicated, difficult, till you just burn out with you just become stressed and, and upset and neurotic and frightened and inept and incapable of dealing with anything. If you just react to, to life out of desire and fear. So really uh, I, I encourage you to, to uh, in this peace vigil, put your heart into it. You know, try to, to use it skillfully. Make it something you love to do. Not, don't, don't come at it as if it were some duty imposed on you. Or, or look at it and try to, to, to see the peace vigil as an offering, the welfare of all beings. Make it, make, make it, intended to be something really beautiful and lovely in the next two weeks. Put your heart into it. Put that kind of effort and love into what you're doing so that when you're sitting in the Dharma Hall 
the meditation hall and and that during those appointed times and and seek other times many times as you can. It doesn't mean Atapemo uh, didn't mean that that only those who sign up for that particular hour are, can go. It's it's not it. Don't look at it as in that way, but. We welcome, all of us are welcome to attend every session, every hour of the day, if we can, 24 hours a day. Contemplate what being at peace is, so that more and more your peacefulness is, is, is one of the greatest gifts you can offer to a world that doesn't understand peace at all. So even if you understand peace just for one, one moment, that's better than not understanding peace ever, <coughs> isn't it? Don't be, uh, don't, don't feel disappointed or hopeless because you can't be really peaceful all the time, twenty-four hours a day, or during the appointed times that you sign up for, that you you might feel pretty confused or angry or agitated, and then feel it feel distressed about it because you're supposed to be at peace, you're supposed to be peaceful. That's why I say be peaceful even with the distress you're feeling. So then you're you're really learning, you're really understanding and knowing peace. And you, you you are peaceful. You are peace. Even though your meant your your emotions might be anything but peaceful. Your intention, that mindfulness, that knowing, that Trust in that. That is the refuge in, in peacefulness. The way of peacefulness, the way of uh, wisdom. So recognize that we, in this human state, we we can choose what we, which way we want to go. We have the free will. We can just follow our habits and desires and fears and just. Follow those if you want. It's up to you. Or we can choose the way of peace, the way of the Buddha. But to choose that way, isn't uh, means that you have to understand it. It's not like a habit. You don't have to understand a habit. You just habits are what you're used to. You just. You know, it's easy to just follow a habit because that's what you're used to following. To to uh, to not follow habits takes a special effort and a determination because we're not used to not following habits. We're used to habits are are is that which we are used to. So in, in when we try to transcend or break habits, it's always going against something that we're used to. And it seems difficult, because going along with what we're used to is not difficult. So not going along with what we're used to is difficult, seems difficult anyway. But it's through that uh, determination to go against the force of habit, just the blind following of habits, and, and, and that that we realize the deathless, realize true peacefulness, true joy, true happiness.
How do these forms come into being? The organism develops from a fertilized egg, which has very little structure, and as it develops, more and more structure comes into being. And this process of the coming into being of form is called by biologists morphogenesis, which simply means coming into being of form, from the Greek word morphe, form, and genesis, coming into being. Although the problem of morphogenesis, uh, the, the fact of morphogenesis is completely central. All of us see every day plants and trees and other people. Um, we recognize all these shapes and forms. Um, we take it for granted that when we plant seeds, they grow into trees or flowers. Uh, it's, we have to remind ourselves that this process, which we see around us all the time and which uh, we take for granted, is not at all understood in scientific terms. In biology, under the reigning paradigm, which is the mechanistic theory of life, or the machine theory of life, an att the attempt is made to try and explain this process of coming into being formed in terms of molecules and in terms of known kinds of chemical and physical interaction. And we have indeed found out a lot about the molecules of life, including the genetic chemical DNA and the many kinds of proteins which make up living organisms. But the, these discoveries of molecular biology have not led to an understanding of the coming into being of form. They've given us much more detailed knowledge about what happens when form comes into being. But they haven't explained it. And one way of stating the problem is to think about our own bodies. The DNA in all the cells of our bodies is the same. We have identical copies of the genetic material in all our cells. And yet the shape of our arms and our legs is different. And our arms and our legs contain the same proteins, the same muscle proteins, the same nerve proteins, the same blood proteins, and so forth. With the same chemicals, different forms appear. And of course, different organs like the eye and the ear and the liver and the kidney have different chemicals from the arm and the leg. Many of them are different. Um, but the problem is, you see, that the chemicals alone do not explain the form. It's like in architecture. If we are trying to study houses or buildings, then we can't understand the form of the building just by analyzing the bricks and the mortar and the wood that is put into the building. And the same bricks and mortar and wood could give buildings of different forms. So the form of the building is not explained by the chemicals in it. In thinking about this problem, one way of trying to understand morphogenesis that's been put forward by biologists, by embryologists and developmental biologists, is the idea of morphogenetic fields. This idea was first put forward in 1922. And it's an idea that the growing organism is shaped or molded by form-shaping fields. The idea of these fields was obtained in the first place by analogy with the known fields of physics, like the magnetic field. Around a magnet, there is a field which we can't see or touch or smell or taste or hear. 
but we can reveal its presence by sprinkling iron filings around the magnet, and then we see a pattern that tells us something about the field, which is around the magnet. The idea was that just as magnets have fields around them, so developing organisms have invisible molds, invisible fields which shape or mold their development. And these invisible molds um, control the form of the organism. So the egg of the organism becomes associated with the morphogenetic field of that species, and this field shapes the development of the embryo, and then subsidiary fields for the arms and the legs shape those, and within those are other fields which shape the development of the fingers and the fingernails and the bones and so on. So there's a whole hierarchy of form-shaping fields involved in the development of the organism. This concept helped in understanding some of the central problems of embryology, which I can illustrate by the first slide. First slide, please. <laughs> this slide uh, shows on the left the normal egg of a dragonfly, and in it has developed a dragonfly embryo. On the right, the egg was tied by a small thread, and part of it was killed. So we only have half of the egg left, the back half. But instead of giving rise just to the back half of an embryo, which it would have done in the normal egg, it now gives rise to a small but complete embryo. So somehow, from part of the egg, we get a whole organism. And the, somehow the organism has been able to adjust to this damage and give a whole in spite of this damage. But the next slide shows another example of this kind of process. And this is regeneration. Everybody here is familiar with regeneration in plants. We can cut a small part from a plant and put it in the soil, and it will grow into a plant if we're lucky. Um, the, the, and we can, from one tree, we can make thousands of trees, each of them growing from a small part of a tree. So the part can give rise to a new whole. This is one of the reasons for thinking in biology that the whole is more than the sum of the parts, because we can take parts away and the whole remains. We can take parts which themselves become wholes. It's a very mysterious property which has baffled biologists for a long time and is one of the problems that any theory of biology has to deal with. Here is an example of regeneration from an animal, from a newt. In this, uh, this is the eye of a newt, and the lens has been removed from the eye, and when the lens has been removed, what happens is that a new lens is formed from the edge of the iris of the eye. In other words, the lens is regenerated, and the eye comes back to a condition of wholeness again after removal of a part. The way in which the lens is formed in the normal embryo is quite different. It's formed by folding in of the outside skin of the embryo, not from the edge of the iris. And this is a kind of damage which would never occur in nature, because in nature we wouldn't expect to find experimental zoologists going around cutting out lenses with a scalpel. Um, so this is a, a striking example of regeneration. There are thousands of others. You can cut up flatworms into small pieces, and each will give a new worm. The idea of morphogenetic fields was put forward to try and deal with this kind of problem. We should have the lights on there, or slide off. <clears throat> The idea is, you see, that if the field is associated with the, uh, the system that you damage, 
then the regeneration is possible because the field is still there and can guide the system to the final form, to the whole form, even though you've taken part of it away. And you see, one of the properties of fields is that they have this kind of wholeness. If you think again of the magnet analogy, if you cut a magnet into two halves, you don't get two half magnets, you get two whole magnets. Small ones, but complete. And each whole magnet has a complete magnetic field around it. You can't cut a slice out of the field and take it away. The field is a whole. And this is the idea, you see, of morphogenetic fields, that they're these form-shaping things which are holes. This is the idea that was put forward first in 1922 by Alexander Gervich, a Russian. And uh, it was then developed further here in Austria in the 1920s. The idea of uh, morphogenetic fields, though, has not really undergone much development since then. Many biologists have accepted the idea of morphogenetic fields and used the term, but the question of what these fields are or how they work has remained very obscure. Quite a lot of biologists would say, oh well, the morphogenetic field is just a way of talking about complicated physical and chemical interactions of a kind which are not yet fully understood. And this would essentially be the mechanistic view. It would be saying the same thing as the ordinary mechanistic uh, model. So most biologists have this view was originally started as a radical departure from orthodox biology. And for most people, it's collapsed back into the orthodox view, uh, the idea that everything will be understood in due course just in terms of molecules and electricity and other known physical factors. There are other people who've taken the view that these morphogenetic fields are more than that. And some people have explicitly adopted the idea that they represent platonic archetypes or forms, that they're somehow metaphysical realities, the shapes or forms of all living creatures, that are changeless in time. This is a kind of platonic model. Not many biologists support this view, but some do. They usually do so secretly. But uh, there are those who, who uh, actually are very keen on this view of them, of morphogenetic fields. The view I'm going to put forward is quite different. I've said all this so far to give you the background to what I'm going to say, to the hypothesis I'm putting forward. This, so far, what I've done is summarize some of the developments in biology over the last 60 years. The point where my own hypothesis starts is, is now in dealing with a third way of thinking of morphogenetic fields. I'm suggesting that these fields are real, that they are a new kind of field. They're not the same as magnetic or electrical fields. They're not just a way of talking about known kinds of interaction between parts of organisms. But there's a, a new kind of field which has so far not been considered by science. And that these fields have forms or shapes. The field of a rose must be rose-shaped, as it were, and the field of a dog must be related to the shape of a dog. And there must be many, many kinds of fields for all the different kinds of animals and plants, different species. So if each of these fields is going to shape the developing organism, if it is going to mold or shape the developing organism, the field of that particular species must itself have a shape or structure. Where does it get that structure from? The answer I'm suggesting is that the shape or structure of the morphogenetic field is derived from the actual forms of previous members of the species. So that the field shaping a cat, the cat morphogenetic field, is a kind of composite of 
the actual forms of previous cats, that these forms act upon the developing cat by a kind of action at a distance through space and time, not by being coded in the DNA, but by direct influence from the actual forms of past cats. And that the morphogenetic field represents, as it were, a memory of the species, a pooled or collective memory. And that every member of the species is shaped by its characteristic morphogenetic field, the field of its species. And in turn, what it does, the form it takes, will influence this morphogenetic field, feed back into this field, and shape and mold future members of its species. This is not an easy concept to grasp, because it's very unlike the kinds of ideas we're usually brought up with. And I'm going to spend some more time now trying to explain it more clearly, um, and giving examples of it, and giving examples of how it can be tested. First, I'll show a diagram to illustrate this um, process. This diagram represents, in a very crude and simple way, the build-up of influence with time. Every kind of form, every kind of animal or plant comes into being in time, and there's always a first one of that kind. Now, this theory doesn't explain where the first one comes from. This one, it, I'll deal with that question later. But <laughs> this, what the theory does do is talk about when there is a new pattern that comes into being in the world, how that pattern will be repeated, why it will, the, the way in which it will tend to happen again. And the second time this kind of system comes into being, it will be influenced by the first example, the third time by the first and second, the fourth time by the first, second and third, and so on. So there will be a cumulative influence. I'm suggesting that this influence doesn't die out with time, nor is it blocked by distance in space, so that as the number of members of the species increases, the morphogenetic field will become stronger, more intense, through repetition. The more something happens, the more likely it will be to happen again. Now, since the members of the species are not exactly the same as each other, but only similar, the morphogenetic field which bears their influence will have a kind of composite of previous members of the species. The it won't give a definite form, it will give an average form, which will be defined in terms of probability, not in terms of sharp boundaries. One way of thinking about this, an analogy for this process, is provided by, the, uh, by composite photographs. And the next slide shows an example. Um, can we lower it slightly? Uh, that's fine. This shows an example of composite photographs. These were made a hundred years ago in England by Francis Galton, a cousin of Charles Darwin's, who was interested in average forms. On the top, you see three sisters. On the bottom, you see the same three sisters in profile from the side. You could raise it up a bit to see. In the middle, you see average sisters, produced by superimposing the three images, giving a third of the normal exposure to each. And so what results is a kind of average face. This is an average of only three. But the process can be continued and the next slide shows further examples. At the top, we have examples of average officers on the left, and on the right, 
average private soldiers from the British Army. Um, Francis Galton was very interested in finding out whether there was a, uh, a distinct racial officer type. Uh, many uh, Englishmen at that time were interested in that question. Um, <coughs> the main difference seems to be that more officers had moustaches. Uh, at the bottom, there are some modern composite photographs. On the left, 30 female scientists, and on the right, 45 male scientists from the John Innes Research Institute in England. So you see, if you look at the face on the right, there are 45 men's faces there. The individual differences have been cancelled out. The common features have been reinforced. And the shape of the face is defined by this kind of probability distribution that we get here. So we have a kind of average form. Now, if we could see morphogenetic fields, I think they would look like that. They would have fuzzy edges. They were not sharply defined. They work in terms of probability, not in terms of exact causation. And this is important because I believe that the way in which they work is uh, ultimately, in terms of modern physics, the way in which they make contact with modern physics would be by influencing probabilistic processes at the quantum level. The next slide shows how morphogenetic fields are organized in... Um, on the left, you have a typical hierarchy diagram. Um, on the right is a better representation where you have what we could call a nested hierarchy or nested layers of organization. Um, we could think of the outer one as the organism, the next circles as the organs, and the ones inside them as the tissues. Then inside those would be cells and organelles and protein molecules and so forth, and then down to atoms and subatomic particles. So morphogenetic fields include other morphogenetic fields, and I think they act upon the systems under their control by influencing the fields and the probabilities of events at the lower-level system. I can't go more into detail as to how they might work now. I try to discuss it in more detail in my book. Um, but I have to move on now to the question of how such, uh, what this kind of theory actually means. We could switch that off now. So far, I've been talking about this in an abstract way, just as a theory, and that's all it is. It's only a theory, one way of looking at the world, or some of the things in the world. But in science, it's important with theories to see what the consequences are, and then to find out how these consequences can be tested, how we can actually find out whether this is a right theory or a wrong theory, or if it's partly right or partly wrong. And to do this, we have to think of the consequences and the kinds of expectations and the kinds of experiments that could be done to test it. I'll now mention one or two of the ways it could be tested by experiment. First, this theory does not apply just to living organisms. It also applies to the forms of crystals, molecules, and atoms. So what I'm suggesting is that even in the realm of chemistry, these kinds of fields should be operating. If we consider the form of a crystal, and I'm now talking about the lattice structure of the crystal, the way in which the molecules are arranged, there are reasons for thinking that this form is not uniquely determined by known kinds of energetic causation. And what I think is happening is that when a new compound is made, if we think of a new chemical that has never been made before, um, chemists make these chemicals all the time in drug companies and in other 
parts of industry and in universities, that the first time the chemical is made, there won't be a morphogenetic field for the crystals, because there won't, been, there won't have been any crystals of that kind before. It may be very difficult to crystallize that compound the first time. It may have to wait for a morphogenetic field to come into being, however they come into being. But after the compound has been crystallized once, then it should be slightly easier to crystallize it all over the world the second time, because it will be influenced by the first crystal's morphogenetic field. And the third time it should be a little easier still, and the fourth time easier still. So it should become easier to crystallize compounds all over the world as time goes on. Is this a fact? The answer is, it is. It's a well-known fact to chemists that new compounds are difficult to crystallize and that as time goes on they get more and more difficult and more and more easy to crystallize all over the world. This has been observed countless times. Many chemists have found this from their own experience and it's generally accepted among chemists that this happens. But what is the explanation? One explanation is that people learn how to do it from other chemists and this is of course possible and it's part of it. The more popular explanation among chemists, in addition to the one of knowledge, is a quite extraordinary explanation, and it's based on the idea that the chemicals crystallize more quickly because parts of the previous crystals are carried around the world on the clothing, or more especially the beards, of migrant chemists. <laughs> and, <clears throat> so the idea is that these fragments of crystals are carried around the world by migrant chemists, and then they fall from their beards into crystallizing dishes in other laboratories and speed up the crystallization. <laughs> and many chemists will tell you stories about this. If any of you have friends who are chemists, you needn't tell them why you're asking, but ask them about crystallization. Try the experiment for yourself, and I guarantee that in the majority of cases you will hear a story about a bearded chemist. <laughs> but, this is part of the folklore of chemistry. It's a really difficult part of chemistry that's not well understood how you get crystals. And it's not rigorously treated in textbooks. It exists as a kind of folklore in, in the minds of chemists. And they'll talk about it informally. But um, it's an area which is a very interesting area, but not really part of the formal structure of chemistry textbooks. Now, this is very interesting from the point of view of the hypothesis I'm suggesting. Because the facts are ones which fit with this hypothesis. The existing explanations are not terribly convincing and have never been tested. So here's an area where we could set up rigorous tests where sealed containers could be made, placed in different parts of the world, where the rates of crystallization of a new chemical could be studied at different times. Bearded chemists could be excluded from the laboratory. Um, <laughs> Dust part oh, the other explanation is that minute parts of the crystals get into the air and travel all over the world as microscopic, invisible dust particles. So we can filter dust particles out of the air to make sure there aren't any of those and find out whether this rate of crystallization really does increase the rate of initiation of crystallization from a supersaturated solution under standard conditions. So this is a possible test. It hasn't been done, but it could be done. There are many possible tests in the realm of um, uh, form and the inheritance of form. I discuss some of these in my book. They're slightly technical to explain, and so there won't be time to talk about them now. I'll be very happy to discuss any of these things in further detail at the technical seminars, which are scheduled to be held on Saturday. 
Um, I shall move now to the kinds of tests that could be done in the realm of behavior, right from the other end of the spectrum of crystals, moving to behavior. And I think that uh, the same kinds of principles, these formative fields, should apply to the control of behavior. I'm suggesting that the in inherited behavior of animals, the instincts of animals, are, coded or are brought about by these kinds of influences from the past, by this process of influence of like upon like, the process I call morphic resonance. So this should apply to behavior as well. And one prediction of this theory is that if you train animals to learn something new in one part of the world, then it should be easier for animals all over the world to learn the same thing more quickly. So if we train rats to learn a new trick here in Austria, then rats in New York and in Australia and in Africa should all be able to learn more quickly because these rats have been trained here just without any known kind of communication. Not because we telephone and we say we've found out how to train the rats. Not so that we take rats from here to there so they can show the other rats how to do it. Without all that kind of connection, they should just learn quicker. That is a prediction of the theory. And you see, this makes it clear how very radical this theory is and how very different it is from our current mechanistic theory in biology. Again, this is something that can be tested. In fact, it has been tested. People have been studying the behavior of rats for a long time, and they've been observing the rate at which they learn new tricks. And I've been through this large literature on rat psychology, and <laughs> uh, this kind of effect does seem to have occurred. Now, I'm not saying this is conclusive evidence to the theory, because one can always think of other explanations, but. I'm just saying that when we look for this evidence, we find that there are things that point in this direction. I'll just give one example of this kind of evidence, which comes from some experiments on rats conducted between 1920 and 1954. The experiments were started at Harvard by McDougall, who was the professor of psychology. He was training rats to escape from a maze of water. And the first generations of rats learned very slowly. If they did it wrongly, Unfortunately, they received an electric shock. And um, this is the usual kind of experiment that people do with rats, you see. Um, they, they received an electric shock. And many of them received hundreds of electric shocks before they learned that they were going out of the wrong exit. He bred from these rats. He took these rats as parents and then took their children and tested them. They learned quicker. The next generation learned quicker still. And he thought that he was providing evidence for the inheritance of acquired characteristics, the Lamarckian theory of inheritance, which, of course, was defended in this country by Paul Kammerer, and which, had, uh, which was a very controversial theory of inheritance at that time, during the 1920s. The experiments were very severely criticized by opponents, and McDougall had to answer his, their criticisms by tightening up his experimental techniques, by doing the experiments more rigorously. He was able to answer all these criticisms. Um, and the, the, most, um, the most common of these criticisms was that he must have been breeding from the most intelligent rats, that he was selecting the cleverest rats and breeding only from those. And he said, no, that wasn't true. He selected the rats at random as parents of the next generation before they were tested. He didn't even know if they were bright or not when he selected them. Then his critics said, well, there must still have been some subtle selection going on. The stupid rats would have got more electric shocks. 
Therefore, they would have been weaker. Therefore, they wouldn't have been so good at having children. Therefore, they would have had fewer baby rats. Therefore, there would have been a selective advantage, a selection in favor of intelligent rats. So he repeated his experiment. And in the second experiment, he actually selected the parents after they had been tested. He selected the slowest learning rats as the parents of the next generation. So only stupid rats were chosen as parents of the next generation. And the next slide shows the results of this experiment. On the left is the average number of errors. So a decrease in the number of errors means an increase in the rate of learning. On the bottom is the number of generations. So you see the first generation made about 250 errors on average before learning to go out of the right exit. The last one, the 22nd generation, was making an average of about 25 errors. So it was an increase in learning of 10 times increase in the rate of learning. This was the opposite of what would have been expected on the normal genetic theory, because with selection for stupid rats, they should have got slower, not faster, at learning. His critics were unable to fault this experiment, so they had no, no alternative but to repeat it. And one of them, Crewe, in Edinburgh, um, got rats that were exactly the same as MacDougall's rats, built water maze exactly the same as MacDougall's, did everything exactly the same as MacDougall. He started after MacDougall had finished. And the very first generation of his rats started off with an average of about 25 errors. <laughs> Some of them got it right first time. So Crewe gave up. Um, he couldn't explain this, why his were learning so quickly, and neither could MacDougall. The next experiment was done in Australia by Agar at the University of Melbourne, and he changed the conditions slightly, and uh, his rats still learned quicker than MacDougall's first generation, um, not quite as quickly as Crude's. He carried it on for 50 generations. It took him 25 years to do this experiment. He found that just as MacDougall had found, rats got better and better in subsequent generations. There was an improvement in the rate of learning. But he also checked the rate of learning in rats which were not descended from trained parents, just from ordinary rats of that breed which were completely unrelated to the ones tested, that had not been, uh, had fathers or mothers or grandparents that had been tested. He found that those were also getting better, just as well as the others and that this increase in the rate of learning was spreading through all rats of this kind. So here is an effect of the kind that this hypothesis is predicting. Um, the data are here, this is one of the longest series of experiments in the annals of rat psychology. And <clears throat> I've found various other examples of this kind of phenomenon in the literature. Now, conventional biologists obviously are not going to be convinced by this evidence because they'll say, oh, well, there must be other explanations. It could have been the experimenters getting better at doing the experiments and all that. That's perfectly possible. I'm not saying mine is the only interpretation. I am saying, though, that this evidence is suggestive and very interesting from the point of view of this hypothesis, and that it suggests that we should, it would be worth doing rigorous tests using animal behavior, like rats, to test this theory. It's possible to design experiments which would give clear results, I believe. The same kind of thing should also be happening with people. Um, I, would, I would imagine that it should be getting easier for children to learn to ride bicycles, for example. 
over the last hundred years because millions of people have done it. Apparently, children are on average learning bicycle riding quicker. But again, of course, there are other explanations, better bicycles, more psychological motivation, better teaching methods, and all that kind of thing. So it's difficult to get clear results. But in every place where I've looked for evidence for this theory, where it makes predictions, the facts fit it very well. So I'm just saying that it doesn't seem to be too outrageous when we actually look at the facts. It leads to a quite new view of heredity. The usual view is that inheritance is, depends almost entirely on information coded in DNA, the genetic chemical. And this is supposed to code all the information necessary for an organism to be formed and for the instincts of an animal, for the inherited behavior of an animal, and so on. It's obvious that DNA and the genetic chemical is important in heredity, and the advances in genetics have shown that differences in DNA can lead to hereditary differences in organisms. I'm suggesting that the form and organization of organisms is inherited directly from past members of their species by morphic resonance. So how do these two views of heredity fit together? They seem to be in conflict at first. When we look more closely, we see that they're not in conflict. They're complementary views of understanding inheritance. And the best way to understand this is to think of the analogy of a television set. You have to imagine yourself in the position of somebody who doesn't understand television, who doesn't know how television works. You'll see a television set, there are pictures on the screen, you see small people talking, or dancing, or making music. If you don't understand the television set, the first and most obvious hypothesis is that inside the set there are some small people whose shadows you are seeing on the screen. And some children think this. You can check that theory by looking inside the set. When you look inside the set, you don't see any small people. So you could then say, well, the people must be very small, microscopic, inside the wires. So you then look inside the wires, and you still can't see any small people. So then you can say, well, they're very small indeed, below the limits of detection of the microscope. Or you could put forward a more sophisticated hypothesis. You could say the small people arise on the, on, the, on the screen of the television set as a result of complicated interactions between all these different parts of the set, transistors, wires, condensers, and all that. It also depends on the energy coming into the set. You take the plug out of the wall and the set stops, put it back in again, the pictures come again. So you've discovered that the, when you take wires out and the pictures disappear, you put some wire, the same wires back and the pictures will reappear. So you could think, well, here the pictures are arising out of complicated interactions among the parts of the set. These parts are made of ordinary chemicals, like copper and silicon. We can analyze these chemicals. There's nothing mysterious about these chemicals at all. They're regular chemicals. Um, and they're arranged in a particular way. And they're interacting with each other in particular complicated ways that aren't yet fully understood. Um, and given time, although we don't fully understand it at present, in terms of ordinary reactions, we will, in 50 years or 20 years, be able to explain the pictures in terms of complicated interactions between the parts, which are not yet fully understood. That, I think, is the position of conventional mechanistic biology. And um, what I'm suggesting, if you said to such a person, well, actually, there are these influences coming from outside the set, invisible influences, we can't see them or touch them or detect them with our senses, but they're coming into the set, 
and the pictures of the people who are coming from outside and are coming into the set. Uh, you see, it could easily be dismissed. This is a very vague theory, he might say, very vague theory. There's no evidence for these influences. This is just mysticism or something like that. However, your idea might be tested seriously. You might say, well, if it's something, it must weigh something, because nothing exists if we can't measure it. So we weigh the set switched on, we weigh it switched off, the weight is the same. So this proves that nothing is coming into the set from outside, and it's all happening just from the inside. Very convincing, you see. Um, but wrong. Not entirely wrong, because all the components of the set are important. But so are the transmissions to which it's tuned, these invisible fields which the set is picking up. What I'm suggesting happens in heredity is that the organism, the fertilized egg, already has a structure, and that structure depends on its genes. And as it develops, the kinds of proteins it makes can depend on its genetic inheritance. That these proteins and the DNA and the chemicals are like the wires and the transistors of the set. They're the building blocks of the set. If you change one of the wires or change the value of a condenser or a resistance, you will change the pictures you get on the screen. So changes in the hereditary material will affect the tuning of the set and will affect the quality of the pictures. But the pictures themselves are not coded in that information. So I think the DNA is setting up the tuning system, the chemicals that make up the tuning system of the set. And the actual organization of the um, form and behavior is coming through morphic resonance by this kind of collective species memory. So DNA has an important role in heredity. What I'm saying is not at all in conflict with the evidence for genetic factors in inheritance. Um, and in fact, the two ideas are completely complementary. We know what DNA does, actually. It codes for the sequence of amino acids in proteins. And some of it's involved in controlling protein synthesis. But that's all. And that may be all it does. And the other kinds of organization depend on morphogenetic fields. So this leads to a very new view of heredity. And it also, because of the new view of heredity, leads to a new view of evolution. Because the current theory of evolution is based on the Mendelian theory of inheritance, on the genetic theory of inheritance. And if that's wrong or too limited, um, and if inheritance involves a kind of collective memory, well, then possibilities exist like the inheritance of acquired characteristics, not just by the offspring of parents that have learned something new, but by all the members of the species, potentially. It goes far further than the Lamarckian theory of inheritance. And um, it also makes possible a kind of connection between different species. It's possible that one species in one part of the world could pick up morphogenetic fields from another species in another part of the world, and similar structures could appear in quite different organisms that are spe separated by an enormous distance, or possibly even by an enormous time. Features of extinct organisms could turn up again. Such things are known from the fossil record and from the study of monsters and are usually called atavisms, reversions, or throwbacks. One of the most radical implications of this theory is in relation to memory. I can't go into this in detail. I shall just outline it briefly. Again, I have to say that there won't be time for questions today, but we'll have to take up these points in the technical seminars. Uh, we can take any of these points up later. So I'm sorry I have to move so fast. Um, when we think of what morphic resonance is supposed to do, 
What I'm suggesting is that organisms are influenced by similar organisms in the past, by this process of morphic resonance, and that the specificity of the resonance will, is greater if the organisms are more similar. So the greater the similarity, the more powerful and effective the morphic resonance. Now we can ask, what is the organism most similar to any given organism in, in the past, to ourselves, for example? What living organism is more similar to me in the past than any other organism? The answer is myself. We are more similar to ourselves in the past and more similar to ourselves in the immediate past than we are to any other organism. Any organism is more similar to itself, any system, any crystal, than any, any atom, any molecule is more similar to itself in the immediate past than to any other system. The morphic resonance acting upon it will be mostly that from its own past. It will thus be the most specific morphic resonance. This, I think, will help to explain how the form of a system tends to be quite stable through time, even though the matter, the actual material constituents, are changing. Our chemicals are changing. Every day we eat new food and we lose and excrete other chemicals. Um, but our forms remain more or less the same. So at the level of form, this process of self-resonance, resonance with one's own past states, will help to conserve and maintain form. In the level of at the level of behavior, this self-resonance will mean that there will be direct influences from one's own past states on one's present state. If one has learned something in the past, if one's done something many times, like riding a bicycle, for example, all those things will influence the present time one's riding the bicycle. And the memory of that habit is not something that need be stored inside the brain. It may come directly from the past by morphic resonance. What I'm suggesting, you see, is that memories need not be stored inside the brain. Our brains may be more like tuning systems than, they are, than memory storage devices. If part of the tuning system is damaged, then we may not be able to gain access to some memories. If we cut a part out of a TV set, we may lose the ability to tune into one channel or to another channel. This doesn't prove that the information uh, that in those channels is coded or carried inside the part of the TV set we've cut out. If we lose memories after brain damage, it doesn't prove the memories are stored inside that part of the brain that is damaged. If memories are evoked by stimulation of a part of the brain, it doesn't prove that they're stored inside the part stimulated because we may stimulate a part of a TV set, it may jump onto another channel. We may start getting a different set of pictures from another broadcasting station. It doesn't prove that the part we've been stimulating electrically is carrying that information. <coughs> in fact, the question of memory is very mysterious. There are many different theories of memory in conventional biology. One is that memories are stored as chemical molecules inside the brain, RNA, for example. That's going out of favor. Another is that there are changes in the nerve endings, uh, which may be distributed all over the brain. Another.